in order for a person to buy a product or to trust a brand and to want to commit money to something, they probably need to hear about it from like three to five different times. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why this brand envisions themselves first and foremost as a tech company, how to protect yourself against missteps when you're developing your first physical products, and the benefits of focusing all your marketing efforts on just one city at a time. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan, so check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Today, I'm joined by Joe Peranto from Fable. Fable creates premium quality home accessories that make design the perfect space effortless and was started in 2019 and based out of Vancouver. Welcome, Joe. Yes, thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, so you started this business because you wanted to find a specific type of perfect gift for your mom. So tell us about that. Tell us about the start of how you came up with the idea behind the business. Yeah, this that all happened in 2018. So my mom had gone through this kitchen renovation she was really excited about it. And my sister and I actually decided we were going to kind of outfit that entire space for her. And after searching high and low in Vancouver, I was able to find some pots and pans, you know, maybe at like the store called like The Bay, if you're familiar with them. Um, but what I was really struggling with was like the dinnerware and the dining room table in itself. And after going in and out of many different box stores and traditional sellers, I was, I was frankly uh, overwhelmed and, and frustrated. And it, I ended up settling for some dinnerware from the Bay for my mom, um, which I, which is lovely. Uh, but the biggest challenge I faced was that it was a 12-inch plate. And I don't know if, it, if anyone would know this, but a 12-inch plate is not the standard uh, diameter to fit into your cabinet. And what this turned into was this big, expensive set that I bought her. I was really excited about. She couldn't use her, her dinner plates, and she had to store them into the top shelf completely sideways. She's really short, so she couldn't reach them. So I was just very appalled and frustrated with this experience. Got it. So an experience that you, you had faced, you wanted to find something perfect for your, your your mom, and you mentioned that it was overwhelming and frustrating and le- led to you purchasing a product that you actually couldn't, your mom couldn't get much use out of. How did that lead you, though, from making this leap from having this own pro- this problem for yourself into wanting to start a business behind it? Yeah. So that was the first time I had really encountered that or actually really encountered trying to buy home decor anywhere than Ikea at that point. And it was about a year later when I was actually trying to upgrade my own home. I was now working at a tech company in Vancouver. I was, you know, getting my first place. And I thought to myself, like, hey, I I don't really go to the bars or, or do that. So I have a lot of friends over. We do like wine tastings. Why don't I upgrade my Ikea dinnerware? To something that it's a bit more special, a bit more memorable, and something I could really, you know, show off to my friends, I guess. And uh, so I kind of turned to the same stores because that's really was all that's available in Vancouver. And I went up and down uh, this street. If you've been to Vancouver, it's called Granville South, and up and down, in and out of all these home decor stores uh, that claim to have, you know, the most beautiful d- dinnerware and home accessories. And again, I was faced with uh, the same challenge that I couldn't find 
uh, dinnerware that I, I really enjoyed. And even, even the greater problem was dinnerware that matched. And I'm not an interior designer. And I thought it was, and I found it very challenging and very frustrating to find plates that would match cutlery, that would match wine glasses, that would match mugs, that would essentially set my entire table. And it's a mishmash of different pieces. And I, I really couldn't put together a set that looked great. Got it. So now what's, what's your background? How did you even begin to go down this path of, like you mentioned, you're not an interior designer. It, it Was this your background, anything involving in, in, in home decor or anything like that? How did you even know what steps to take to build a business around an industry like this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. One I ask myself all the time, because that was not my background at all. My background was I was previously an accountant. Um, so I worked at an accounting firm. I'm from Regina, Saskatchewan. So I'm from the prairies, like nothing to do with tech whatsoever. And I ended up moving to Vancouver uh, in seek of you know warmer weather. And uh, what I found was this accounting company called Bench Accounting. And I was very fortunate to join uh, when they were a bit younger. And I was one of their early on employees. And I got to take advantage of that entire tech experience and watch the company grow from 30 employees all the way up to you know 250 by the time I had left. And at that point, I was amazed and uh, jealous and envious, and I really wanted it for myself to, to go create a, a startup. And I think it's at that point, I was really just looking for the right idea, uh, the right problem that I was really passionate about or that really you know, got under my skin in the right way. And it just so happened to be the, these two experiences with dinnerware. Got it. So the, the the business, like we had mentioned when we introduced you, was in the the quality and premium home home accessory space. And your background, more recent, most recent background, is in tech. And you mentioned a couple of times. Do you see yourself as a as a tech company more so, or maybe as much as like a, a home accessory business? I would say we we definitely view ourselves as a as a tech company, and uh, and an innovator. Honestly, I think we've taken a lot of what we have learned from our experience in tech and, and both of the co-founders are from tech as well into, into Fable and just the way that we work and the theories that we apply to the problems we're solving is very much with that uh, tech high growth mindset. Got it. Can you say more about that? Like what is it about, what, what have you taken, what have you, what have you adopted from your experience in, in the tech industry to apply in this space? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, even some of the most basic concepts where we talk about, you know, MVPs um, and trying to just get something in the market that you can test and you can see how people, you know, adapt to it as opposed to trying to develop the most perfect uh, product in the entire world. And for us, we really look at Fable as a, uh, a journey and something we're constantly iterating on and constantly building upon. So uh, one thing we learned at Bench was, you know, that concept of uh, get something into the wild get something in the hands of users, see what they think, listen to their feedback and iterate on it and make changes really quickly. And I would say at the core of Fable, that's really how we operate and, and how we've you know progressed the company. Got it. Yeah, definitely familiar with the, the process in, in the kind of software space. How does it change or what kind of differences are there when it comes to physical products like like what you're selling when it comes to taking this, this kind of tech and startup, especially, you know, tech startup approach to launching a business and developing an MVP? Yeah, a, a lot longer lead times uh, for things. So in tech, my experience was, oh, we have this bug here and it can be fixed in in minutes, right? Um, and I guess while our website can do that. Um, but if we create a product that has a deficiency or a serious issue, 
that actually is a lot of work to go back and replace it. And it's not a quick fix that you can do in a week or two or in a quick sprint. It's actually something you got to go replace over the next six months because you have to go develop it and create it and the supply chain components. So I found uh, that we need to think a bit more longer term, maybe not as quick and as agile because we got to plan for some of these longer lead times uh, for the products. Got it. So tell us about the MVP. When you first decided to launch the business, what was the product that you started with? What, did, what, did, what was the MVP version of that? So when we launched the business, we, we talk about the business launching in November 2019. We had actually already launched a different MVP under a completely different name uh, and learned a ton. So we, we took the approach of, uh, I think we launched, we sold like maybe 200 dinner plates or something, something very, very small. And uh, we were really, we we're really excited about it. But we ended up uh, starting by sourcing some products from Alibaba, so not really designing them ourselves. Uh, we were really looking to find a creator um, that could do mass production for us. And we didn't really have a, a huge hand in the design side of that. Um, what we found is, is we, we learned very quickly, it's very important to find the right creator that matches what you guys are looking for. And we did not have a focus or as much of a focus on you know sustainability at that time either. And we actually, a lot of the products that we received, now I don't think many people know this story, but a lot of the products that we received actually all came scratched. So we had you know 200 plus dinner plates completely scratched. And I remember uh, Max, Tina, and I sitting in our uh, storage space um, with all 200 plates on the ground. We were trying to count all of them and photograph all these scratches to try and get reimbursed. And it was a complete nightmare. And I think that was the learning point for us when we said, we're only going to work with suppliers who think about the world in the same way we do. Got it. So this is a step that, you, that a lot of people take where they're sourcing products from Alibaba instead of creating it themselves. And it's a lot. It's that, again, a step that a lot of people take when starting a business. And you mentioned that it was a learning point for you. Now, looking back, did you, was this the right first step though? Was it, was it, do you find that it was a valuable first step? Or would, if you were to go back, would you have skipped this from the beginning? It was certainly valuable. I will not discount that. I learned a lot at that point. I would skip it if I would have known that it was the wrong first step. Absolutely. Um, but that all being said, I, I'm really proud of our journey and where we're at. So I, I wouldn't change the past, but I do wish we wouldn't have had to do that. And I would not recommend someone doing that going forward. Got it. Now, you mentioned that you are, once you learn that lesson, you now knew that you had to find the right suppliers that had the same kind of like worldview, same kind of values that you had. Can you say more about that? Like, what exactly were you looking for in this kind of second round and how did you find them? Yeah. So, I think one of the really positive outcomes of that situation was we had some products, a very small batch, very low MOQ that we were able to get in the hands of consumers. And as soon as we were able to get them into the, ha the hands of these consumers, it became even more clear what they were looking for. There was parts about that product that they really enjoyed, and part of the some of the essence of that product still exists today. Um, and there were things that they did not enjoy and they did not love whatsoever. And that helped guide us uh, to figure out who we wanted to work with and what that what that system needed to be. Um, to shed a guess some light on that, um, when we would share the products with people. Um, one of the things they would turn to with the ceramics is they really wanted to know who made it, how it was made, what types of materials, was it non-toxic, was it good for the earth, what's, their, what's our look on sustainability. And I think part of that is because we're in Vancouver and it's very, uh, very much in that mindset in that location. But that being said, people, when they think about ceramics, they think about the earth and it reflects them back to um, you know, sustainability. 
So we were able to take a lot of those conversations, a lot of those customer interviews and those learnings, and then really just apply them into uh, our next iteration of Fable. Got it. Now, when you went through this process then of finding a new supplier, new manufacturers to uh, push forward these kind of values, the sustainability, the materials that you guys value, the way that it's produced, how do you, how do you, how did you identify? How did you find the right supplier? Now that you knew that these were the new kind of list of criteria. Yeah, it was. You know, I wish I could say it was some glorious effort, but it, it wasn't really. We identified two locations that we felt makes a lot of ceramics. We were able to, to narrow it down to Portugal and, and China. They do both of these countries are compete for ceramic creation. And uh, what we were able to find was a government database uh, from Portugal that had every list of every person who makes ceramics. So it was like a business list. It was hundreds of businesses that make ceramics, not just dinnerware, just like any type of ceramics. And what I would do is I would stay up in the, in the night because uh, we were on very different time zones, like eight hours difference. And I would just call all these locations, especially like not many of them have a website. Um, so I'd have to call them all and just ask them like, hey, do you make dinnerware? This is what we're trying to make and follow up email after email. And what we, we were able to do is really narrow that list down to about 10 key different creators, you know, in different teams here in Portugal and what that then transpired into was uh, me quitting my job and flying over to Portugal the very next day uh, to go meet with them all. Wow. So that's a, a pretty big leap of faith. What, what, what did you see about the business? What did you see about the, the opportunity that made you so confident to do all of that? Yeah, a lot. You know, and I think a lot of this comes back to our original launch or you know, our most MVP version of Fable and the feedback we received from customers and it was a lot of validation on that. The problem we were trying to solve existed. Uh, there wasn't any, a clear solution out there for them at the time. And uh, they really wanted us to go solve it. And they were really passionate about that. And it became more and more clear that working a full-time job in the tech industry was not going to, to allow me to, to make Fable successful or to allow our team to do that. Got it. Okay, so how long did this process take to find this this new this new supplier as you were you know making these calls and and um, you're reaching out to all these different suppliers to, to see if they were up to your standards? Maybe like two months, so not very long at all. Uh, from the moment that I found that list uh, on the government website through the moment that I I met them in Portugal and we had per, you know purchased the first purchase order, uh, yeah, it was about two months or so. Got it. And so when you landed in Portugal, you were just going to hit up these 10 different uh, creators that you had found. And then and what was it? What was the exact mission once you landed in Portugal? It was uh, rent a Fiat and uh, start driving and go from location to location. Uh, and I had a list of criteria questions that the team and I had created, the two other co-founders, Tina and Max. And what we, what we would do is I would go visit these different creators I would share with them what we wanted. Uh, we had some samples of like the different pieces and the styles we were hoping to go create. And uh, these teams would either say, no, 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 we can't, we can't do that. You're the wrong fit for us. Or like, hey, we can. Um, this is what it would look like. Here's some pricing. Here's some different things that we've done in the past. And then I would call Max and Tina every single night. And I would, you know, video, video face, video time them um, and share and say like, hey, this is what this looks like. Or what do you guys think? And we just went through that process really quickly. And I think I was in Portugal for about, you know, 10 days. Uh, and we had made the decision by the end of those days. 
Got it. Now you went to Portugal with armed with knowledge about the the kind of changes that you wanted to to make from that first attempt that you went through with Alibaba. But how did you find your very first customers to put your MVP in front of to get this kind of data? Yeah. Well, so some of the first customers we ever found was, you know, we relied on friends and family to really spread the word. But after we kind of ran out of that sales channel, uh, we actually did a few different things. Uh, lots did not work, and one did work. The one that did work, I, I'm happy to share them all, but the one that did work really well was when we attended a local, very small, like almost like a craft show, but for like local small businesses in Vancouver. And they had like maybe 2,000 people walk through this location on these weekends. And we would buy a booth for like $300 and we didn't have any products to sell, mind you, at this point, right? So we couldn't really sell anything at this. But what we would do is we'd show people the pieces and we would just put it in their hands and try and understand what they liked about it, what they didn't like. We would pitch them almost as if we're like cold calling, be like, oh yeah, these plates are like this, or they have this feature or they have this. And what we found really quickly is by reading the person's interaction with them, uh, you know, how they lit up when we said certain words or they would be kind of like, oh, this is, that makes no sense. Why'd you say that? Um, we were able to take that feedback in really quickly, like live instantaneously, and then apply that to how we plan to actually use our go-to-market strategy when we were about to launch in November. Got it. And was this just like one event that you went to or how many times did you go through this before you had a, a solid or a comfortable enough understanding of your market that you move forward with and, you know, everything else from going to Portugal and find the right manufacturers and so on? Yeah, we, we did that event three times. And this was, mind you, this was after when we had found our, our creators. We did this event three different times and it was really around like product positioning and product marketing. Um, a few of the other things we did, I think that the second runner up that was worked really well was, um, in Vancouver, there's this street called like in Granville South and it's where all of the home decor, uh, stores are like, uh, you know, your pottery barn, Williams, Sonoma, EQ3, CB2, Indigo, they are all on the same street. I, mind you, they are for most countries or most cities. Um, and what we do is we'd stand outside and we would offer people like a $50 Amazon gift card to be entered. And we did this like draw, but we could just like interview them and ask them questions about their dinnerware. So we would pretty much just stand out there every Saturday for a few hours and just ask people questions and take as many notes as we could to try and obtain as much information on what people cared about when they think about their you know dinner, dining room table or their home in general. Got it. I'm assuming this is kind of an evolving process that you're always trying to learn. At what point, though, were you confident in the positioning of your of your of the brand of the messaging for you to go ahead with with actually launching the business? I don't. I'm not quite sure. I was like ever a hundred percent confident. I think I knew that we had something, uh, something that could work, but I knew that it was never going to be a hundred percent right, and I knew there was still going to be work to do. I think we knew we had good product positioning uh, from like a marketing standpoint the, the day we launched. I think that was the time when we said, I think we are onto something here that's that could actually work. Mm. Tell us more about that that value proposition. What, what are you proud of that makes your product stand out from the rest of the market? Yeah, I think our, our unique insight that we continually come back to is our products have a story. Our products are created by people. Uh, we feature those people and we're really proud of, of you know, where, where they come from and the product's heritage. 
I think that a lot of uh, main brands, they kind of put a veil between you and the product and they say, you know, we designed this, but won't really tell you like who made it. You know, it's, that's not really important. What's important is like, it's a plate. And for us, we've kind of removed that. And we like to think of it as more, this product has a story and it came from somewhere and, and uh, it has a very rich and interesting story. Let us share that with you. And I think that that is, you know, one of the most overarching product uh, concepts across our entire brand. Mm. Now, how do you put that front and center in your marketing that, the, that there's a story behind? How do you actually use it in your marketing? I think that's it's a very evolving concept on that front. Um, it's right now, if you were to look at our site today or at our marketing today, it wouldn't be as much on the imagery. It'd be more on the language and the copy. But um, I'm actually in Portugal right now to do shoots um, with our different creators. So it's going to vastly change here very quickly where we'll be able to share like video content of those creators uh, all the way through, you know, still photography on those creation stories. So it's definitely something we're always building on. And I would say we're not, we're not even 100% there yet. So this is interesting that the approach that you've taken with a business is almost like a creator first approach, making sure that you... It's like a table stakes for you to find a creator that that will actually have a story that would actually have a story that will resonate with your with your target customers and your market. Does this pose any kind of challenges that you've run into yet, or trying to? Is is it hard to find creators that 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 match up with your that have a story that match up with the story that you want to tell? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely poses us a a challenge for us, and it makes uh, things very tricky and not easy. Um, for example, we are always looking for new products and we have a, we have a lot of products we're really excited to release next year. Uh, one of the most prominent being, um, probably, I don't know if I should say this, but it's going to be glassware, but it wasn't an easy process to go find a, a glassware creator that had a story that we could be really proud of, um, that focuses on sustainability, that focuses on ethical craftsmanship. Um, that wasn't an easy task. And actually, quite frankly, that's over half the battle is finding that. Then the second part, which is the actual product in itself. Mm. And I think that there are other entrepreneurs out there that might not have taken this kind of creator first approach, but can still dig into the creators, the manufacturers, the, the story behind their product and how it's created. How do you get, the, how do you pull those things out when you're, when you're, when you're on the ground or when you're talking to the people that are involved in creating this product, how do you pull out the story uh, from them? Yeah, it's it's a it's a long list of Q and A questions we we've you know built out and that we ask each creator. Which is it wasn't that way at the start. It was a lot of uh, we didn't quite know the story. Then we had to re-ask them it. Um, but it's really now transitioned more into a, a process for us. Like here's the set list of you know thirty questions we need you to answer. Uh, let us know uh, what the responses are. We have an interview with them. We chat through all the answers. And um, we then make sure that they they really align to to our standards and to what we're what we're looking to or who we're looking to work with rather. Mm. What what's your personally f- favorite question to ask a, a creator? It's you know my favorite question because uh, I think it, it I just find it really interesting is really wrapping our heads around uh, their employees and their staff and uh, you know, are they fairly paid? Because I think that that just re- resonates really well with me and I, it matters a lot to me. Are they fairly paid? And are men and women being paid the same amounts for the same roles? Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
Now you mentioned that one of the differences in the the kind of software startup world and the world that you're in it, with physical products is that there are longer lead times and basically less room for error. Right? It's a lot a lot more costly for some of these if you make if you were to make a mistake. So how what do you, what steps have you taken to avoid and protect against these kind of missteps when you're trying to uh, you know do this kind of rapid development in the world of physical products? Yeah, that's a really good question. We do a pretty rigorous sampling process now that I think we didn't quite do at the start. So we really do request a lot of samples. We really test all the products ourselves and use them ourselves uh, for a long period of time before we're willing to, to even go potentially sell the product. We also do, you know, like I think pretty standard things, which is, you know, different third party certifications for safety and hazardous and some of those components, which I think are really table stakes at this point. But uh, for us at the start, it was a lot about speed. And I think we've the learning lesson for us has been to slow down a little bit because uh, these are could be costly mistakes if you release a product that uh, isn't up to the standard that you had hoped because it, there is such a long lead time on them. Now, we had mentioned already that home accessories, this, this industry is not your background. And it's a reason that causes a lot of entrepreneurs to pause where they feel like they don't have the expertise or the pedigree, the experience within an industry that they are, they have, this, they have to discover that they, they've wanted to kind of disrupt and come into to, to, to build a business around. How, how did you overcome the, these gaps that, that you know, you're coming in, no background in this space and wanting to come in and, and be a player? Yeah, I, I wish I had a really interesting story here, but I don't. I a lot of Googling um, and a lot of you know YouTube videos, a lot of uh, asking friends and family. Um, and I would say we've been very fortunate to have some great mentors on our team. Um, these mentors have founded you know other direct to consumer brands, which have really helped accelerate us and been able. They've been able to pass along these learnings. Uh, to our team, so you know it's been a it's been a yeah challenge, but but we we've been relying on a lot of different people um, to help support us in that front. Were there any specific obstacles that that you can remember that that due to you being a new entrant into into the the space that were particularly challenging? I think the challenge was we didn't really know anything. I think it's a challenge and an advantage. We had no really expectations of how things work, so we came in and thought. What's the quickest way from point A to point B? And while I think we were able to shortcut a lot of uh, traditional processes and you kind of like skirt around those, which helped us operate with a bit more speed, um, it was also, there was also some challenges, like um, a really simple one, like who is the best freight forwarder to work with when you're exporting out of Portugal? Like I, I had no idea. So, you know, I'm calling all these different freight forwarders that I Google and Google's not super helpful if you Google freight forwarder, it doesn't really tell you. It's more meant for a consumer, not for a business. It's actually kind of hard to find that information that, oh, you could work with X or you could work with Y, but Y is better from this location to this location. That was that was hard to overcome. I know another interesting challenge was like, which, you know, which port should we be exporting out of in Portugal? And it has the quickest boat times so we don't have stops off in, off in London randomly. Like which boat provider should we be using? And it was, it's challenges like that, that while, you can have a lot of mentors in the world. We didn't even know to ask those questions. So we've been just faced with, you know, different challenges because we didn't, we didn't even know that that was going to be a problem. Mm. Now, once you did settle down in those 10 days in Portugal, how long did it take to get your first production run that was ready to, to be sold? Four months, four months until we had the product, uh, in Canada. Got it. And what was the launch strategy once you had those products? Well, 
I think one of our insights was that it was going to be very hard to launch to an entire country or an entire like continent of you know United States and Canada. So we tried to keep our marketing efforts very focused and very uh, in one geographic location and try to be be someone to a smaller group of people. So we actually launched like particularly in Vancouver only. And we did a few different things. Um, the first, and by the way, a lot of things that didn't work, but I could talk about those too. Um, the first thing we realized though in Vancouver is that no one had ever heard of us or our products. And it was going to be really hard for people to trust our brand online. So we ended up trying to find as many different uh, influencers, or I guess just in general, influential people on Instagram or on Facebook um, that we could gift our product to. So we reached out to hundreds of different content creators asking if we could just gift them our product. And, and by the way, at this point, we, we hadn't fundraised any money. We were completely bootstrapped. We had, we had like no money. So we really were in a position where it was like, we just, we can't pay you for anything. All we can do is, is give you our product. If you like it, we appreciate it if you share it, but you know, there's no obligation. Just take the product, let us know what you think, or we'd be excited to hear. And what we did is we curated this, these groups of content creators who had an audience in that, like in that region, in the Vancouver region. So what, ed- what ended up transpiring was, hun- you know, I think it was like 30 to 60 different content creators all around the same time. Cause everyone was kind of getting delivered their products on the same day posting about us, like how excited they were about our, our products. And I think that was what kind of really kickstarted us um, to, to sell uh, in that location. And really how we, that same strategy of by market by market is really what we look at and we still do today. Yeah, I like I like this this approach. It's definitely a unique approach of, of launching where you're focused on one geographic area. I'm curious, how did you settle on choosing to focus on a geographic area versus things like demographic or based on some kind of interest and focusing all your marketing in one interest, for example? Why geographic? I think that, you know, I, I again, I don't know if there's any mathematical science behind this that actually proves this point right, or we just got very lucky. Um, but what one of our early concepts was that in order for a person to buy a product or to trust a brand and to want to commit money to something, they probably need to hear about it from like three to five, from three to five different times. They need to see it. They need to hear it. And ideally, someone they trust has talked about it or they've heard it from someone they trust. So our concept was that if we know the audience is if we can center an audience into a very particular location, it'll be easier to get that many touch points out to those people and be much more cost effective. Got it. Now, how many how many influencers did you did you launch with initially? I, I'd have to pull up the old spreadsheet, but I think it was anywhere between thirty to sixty within the first you know ten to fifteen days. Got it. So, so it's certainly very doable for anyone that that wants to do this. And you mentioned that it's still something that you do today. I'm assuming that it's a much more expanded program. Tell us about what it's what's it's uh, evolved into. Yeah, it's evolved. It's a it's a lot more robust now. It's more much more sophisticated. We actually have a little bit more tracking. Um, we have different ways to graduate these these different partnerships into different paths. Uh, whether that be you know we we don't really do affiliates, for example, but whether that be you know a uh, a content creator that we're constantly regifting things to when we release new products all the way through, which would be, you know, kind of on the more like um, very basic level, but all the way through, uh, we recently did a, like a full product launch with a content creator 
and we actually were able to you know co-collaborate on a p- on a color line and launch it together so it, the partnerships progress in different ways but it's definitely much more sophisticated now we we have software that helps us track everything um, and it's not in a Google spreadsheet fortunately got it so when you're you're you mentioned that you're constantly working with some of these influencers and influencer marketing can be hard to track to measure the success so how do you do that today how do you measure the success of a given influencer that you're working with yeah today we we give them a link to like a swipe up link that they can send people into and then we use you know like a standard 30-day cookie on that to track the success but we've in the past, we didn't do that. In the like very early days, we gave out a 10% off discount code and we just tracked off of those sales from that point. But we've actually moved to this software called Grin. Would would highly recommend it You know, as you're starting to hit a bit more scale. And um, it helps you pretty much manage all of these different campaigns and really lays it out in a most simple, intuitive platform that I've ever seen. So you had mentioned that collaboration is also a different approach that you've taken with unique colors, which is, is, it sounds like a bigger level effort. How do you determine whether you are working with an influencer to do this kind of larger scale collaboration versus kind of more of a traditional influencer marketing partnership? Yeah. You know, what it came down to was we really, we really liked this person. Uh, We were able to meet with her a few different times, uh, you know, and once in, in person and we had done some smaller works in the past together. And we knew that you know, her audience, her demographic was really excited about what we're doing. Um, but we also really loved what, what she was doing. She is a nutritionist, uh, so very focused on food, but also you know, a nice uh, level of uh, lifestyle is built into her, her content. And it was just really a great match. And we just, I guess I just, we just really liked working with her. So for that reason, we felt like she aligned with the brand. We decided that uh, maybe we could approach her with this idea and we just, we came to her with this concept and, uh, it seemed to work out. And when you do reach out to a, a new influencer, what, what, what seems to work to get their attention? What do you find that influencers care about? We, we just reach out on DMS. We just send a DM really quick and we say, Hey, we, you know, we share about what, why we like what they're doing. Um, we try and engage in their audience um, and be a part of their audience. So I don't think we would ever just really reach out to someone who we weren't already really excited about or who we had been watching from afar for a little bit of time. Um, what we do for our prospecting for different content creators is we'll we'll find ones that we're interested in, we'll kind of follow along, we'll join their community, engage in their community, uh, you know, get more involved with what they're doing, really understand what they're doing, and then we'd reach out on a DM, uh, just asking if they'd be interested to do something together. And most of these are through like Instagram. Yeah, through Instagram or email. Uh, we've we've done both. I mean the 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 promotions that these influencers are doing, where they're posting content. That's mostly through Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we haven't been able to get on some other the other platforms yet, but we're really excited. We're hoping to be on TikTok uh, here in the next couple of months. Got it. And it sounds like you had mentioned that there's a link that you give them for for swipe up. So meaning Instagram stories. Is that the approach that you've seen that has been most effective with stories versus like a post on the the, the actual feed? Yeah, I would 100% would recommend an unboxing video on the stories. Got it. Now, what about managing all of this? Like when you have influencers like the 60 that you start off with, you mentioned that it was done in spreadsheets before. What do you do nowadays to, to or is it still through spreadsheets to kind of manage all of the influencers that you're working with? Yeah, we use a tool called Grin. Um, and Grin allows you to kind of manage and oversee all these different campaigns and different partnerships uh, with different content creators and you know different influencers. 
So we put them all into this system and we can do our, our emailing and messaging out of there. We can also track the results. Um, and also we can capture all of the different photography and different stories through this system as well. So it allows us to get access to those assets. So that tool in itself has been a, a game changer for us. Got it. Now, what about like direction? When you do have an influencer that is that that agrees that wants to work with you, what's the what's the what's your involvement in in the the results, the deliverable end of it when they're producing content? Like, are you giving them any kind of guidance? Like, what's been helpful? What's been useful for 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 what you guys have been doing to you know essentially get the result that you're looking for? We don't give any guidance, honestly, because we're gifting the products for free. In most cases, we don't ask for anything in return. And we just ask if they like it to share about it. And I think we we do a lot of our work up front to understand the type of content that they already do, the end of the brands that they work with. And we try and understand who they are before we even reach out and, and want to associate ourselves with them. So most of that work is already done up front. And then we we really let them take it from there. Got it. Okay, so Vancouver is the first place geographically that you started. You concentrate all your marketing efforts there with the influencers. Where did you go next? We went out east in Canada, so we went to Toronto and Ottawa and focused our efforts out there. And what was the decision behind that? How did you decide, okay, now that we've been successful in Vancouver, how did you decide to, say, to go to Toronto next? It was, it was twofold. So the first part was that we import our products from Portugal. And we were taking them all the way from Portugal and taking them all the way around the Panama Canal and up to our warehouse in Vancouver. And we realized that that shipping time was crazy. It took so long. So we decided that we were actually going to open in a warehouse on the East Coast. But since most of our sales were on the West Coast, it, it made that decision more challenging. So it was a no-brainer for us to move our efforts, our marketing efforts out to the East Coast to reduce the freight time of getting our products into Canada because we could cut that lead time down in half if we just didn't have our warehouse on the West Coast. So that was part of the decision. The second part was uh, we were really fortunate in the spring uh, to get accepted into a tech accelerator called Techstars in Toronto. So our team was actually moving out to the East Coast anyways for this accelerator program. And what that then enabled us to do was we could be more part of that community. So it was kind of a no-brainer for Toronto to be the next stop. Makes sense. When do you know when it's time to expand? Once you've, you know, you mentioned you can Vancouver to Toronto and you've you know, expanded since then, how do you know, okay, now it's time for us to target another city? Yeah, I think for us, it was just around our growth goals and, you know, how many different customers we wanted to have, you know, join the Fable family and how many customers we wanted to acquire. And while Vancouver is a very big city, uh, we were also conscious that we weren't going to be able to expand uh, forever in that location. So when we when we took a step back and we thought about the growth we wanted to see in, in 2020, it was a lot about we needed to have a, you know, a bit bigger of an, an audience to try and obtain customers from. So for that reason, uh, it made sense for us to start looking uh, into another market to expand. How many cities would you say you're focused in today? Just the two regions. I, I, I would now call them regions, maybe less cities. Um, so the region of the lower, you know, the lower mainland of British Columbia, the Pacific Northwest, you could actually call that. And then the the second region would be that Toronto, Ottawa, um, Montreal, that region as well. So that mm. eastern side of Canada. Are there any differences as you find that you're finding as you are that you've gone from from city to city? Yeah, the people the people are very different. Um, in you know, in good ways. Um, the you know, su- is the subtle things of um, 
you know, what products people are exposed to in different cities is vastly different and what shapes and colors people like in different cities is completely different all the way through, you know, as we're more prominent in Quebec now, we get a lot of questions in French. Um, so luckily we have someone that's bilingual that can help out with French questions, but yeah, it's not, uh, it's definitely a bit different as you, as you move across the entire country. Got it. Now, the, the website, we'll talk a little bit about the website. Was this designed in-house? Did you hire someone, an agency, to, to create this website? It was designed in-house. And I think the site you're seeing right now is maybe our sixth iteration. Um, we've gone through so many different uh, different ones that we thought we liked. Um, and I'm actually, just the other day, someone posted in our Slack channel the very first iteration. And oh, it's, it's embarrassing to look at. Um, but yeah, we've gone through multiple different iterations. We did it all in-house. Well, that's good that you're you're embarrassed by the first iterations. It means that there must be some improvements. So, tell us about that. Like, what six iterations in just a couple of years? What were some changes that you've made throughout the, the, the these iterations that made a big impact on things like getting your message across better or conversions? Yeah, I think a lot of it stems to the photography. Um, again, we did a lot of the photography in house at the start. You know, for this most recent iteration, we actually hired an agency to help with some of the photography. And the photography level has drastically gone up. And I would say when what has mostly helped with the, the um, raising conversion rate was introducing more lifestyle photography. So more photography where people can relate to the pieces, they could see the pieces in their own home, less just the standard e-commerce photo of a plate on a white background, which is, which is where we started. Yeah, I think that, that that makes a lot of sense when it comes to the lifestyle, the the kind of context that you have your your products and how did you determine how do you determine what's going to resonate with the the, the target customers in terms terms of like what should the lifestyle be? Yeah, a lot of different customer customer interviews and customer feedback has gone into that. Um, we're very fortunate that we actually brought on this this great creative developer um, or sorry creative director in the summer. And she's been able to really help spearhead that on the different style and the different approach to what, you know, what does the Fable brand look like and what does it feel like? But a lot of it has always stemmed from our customer feedback. And what are you looking for in that kind of feedback? Like the use cases, like what their home looks like, like what kind of information do you uh, find is most useful when it comes to getting data points to give a photographer when they're doing a shoot? Yeah, exactly. You know, learning more about their home and their space, their lifestyle are you know are they you know are they a business executive that lives in a small condo that travels around all the time is very different style than someone who lives you know in the suburbs has a has a family a bit more of like a slow living style you know that drastically shifts how we think about lighting and shadows for example um or even the spaces that we feature our products in so yeah it's it's a lot of that it's a lot about trying to really understand who that person is what do they do for work what is their family like do they have a dog don't they have a dog you know, how, how old is their kid roughly? Um, where do they live? And really trying to dissect that information to help influence um, our decisions. And these, these interviews are being done, by, done with the customers uh, from the past? Exactly. How do you typically like recruit a customer to get this kind of feedback? I think it's obviously super valuable and yet you had mentioned it has a big impact on things like conversion rates when it comes to uh, influencing the, the photography that you have on your site. But how do you even begin to recruit uh, customers to, to get this kind of information out of them? Yeah, in, in the past, we would just um, send them an email and ask them if they wanted to do this uh, for XYZ gift card or to be entered into a draw for XYZ product. 
Um, so honestly, in the most simple way, we do also a lot of our customer research. We do, you know, a little, um, uh, we're able to, you know, take their, you know, we have all the addresses cause we have all the shipping addresses. So we're able to kind of build like different demographics off of some of that information as well. So it's, it's twofold. Got it. So you had mentioned uh, Grin uh, is an application that you use for the influencer marketing campaign management. Are there any other apps that you rely on as a business to 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 keep the things running? Yeah, we use Gorgeous. If you've ever, I'm sure a lot of people know of that, but it's a great tool to manage all of your customer support requests. It links right into Shopify so you can edit orders right out of Gorgeous and you're not kind of fumbling around in the Shopify UI. Um, but Gorgeous is fantastic. Um, some of the other tools or apps we've added on in the past, which I, I really love would be in cart upsell that allows your customer to like add on those add on items right in the cart. And you can give those nice product suggestions. Yeah. The other one we use is a review platform called looks. It provides, um, all the reviews your customers submit, and then it features them in a, a really unique way that I think stands out, but all of the images are there and it really encourages your customer to take an image of their products in their home. Yeah, one thing I mentioned to us was that one of the biggest factors to your success is not just the influencer gifting and the influencer marketing you've been doing, but also the spread of word of mouth. What do you think are the biggest factors to a product or brand that is conducive to this kind of word of mouth marketing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think we've been very fortunate um, because people, and I, myself included, when I cook something at home, I'm gonna you know stand over it and take an overhead photo and post it on Instagram. So. Um, you better bet my friends are going to find out that, you know, I cooked up some, you know, this like lentil meatloaf, you know, Aaron Ireland's lentil meatloaf. You better bet they're, they're going to know I put all that effort in. So uh, at that point, a lot of our customers are also tagging Dine with Fable and they are tagging. They're really excited because it's in their new Fable plates. So we're, we're really a part of that. That part of their step in their life is, you know, when they share what they cooked and they share what's going on in their home, you know, that Fable is is featured there. Yeah, this almost has to be like in the DNA of the lifestyle that that you are kind of capturing with the product. It's almost like something that you, it's hard to design into a product. It has to be something that's already, um, I don't know, a part of the process, a part of the the, the behavior that, that your customer takes, where in your case, people like taking photos of the food that they've cooked or food that they're eating. So it sounds like it's something that's hard to, 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 to develop, but you almost have to choose into the right industry or the right category that is that 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 encourages people to share photos like that yeah i i I totally agree i think that i imagine if you're like a a debt consolidator company it's you know it's pretty hard to get your customers to be bragging that they they use this app or this tool um i imagine that's that's an uphill battle and it's it's hard to do so i think we're very fortunate that we picked a product that is you know conducive to to sharing and sharing on on social media Certainly great in, in in hindsight for you, for anyone out there that is thinking about starting a business. It sounds like it's such a big kind of uh, um, win to your backs to have something like this, to have a product that is, again, that's just shareable, that has content that's shareable. So fablehome.co is the, the URL for the website. And you had mentioned a couple of times during this interview about how lots of things haven't worked along the way. What has been the biggest lesson that you've learned this past year that you want to instill in the, the business practices or instill in your own life that, that, again, that you've picked up in this past year that you want to take advantage of moving forward? I think the biggest learning for us is when something's not working, to, to move away from it uh, quickly and to take that feedback in, um, no matter what, like kind of that sunk cost is. 
And I think that we're kind of finding that um, with some of our, our our pieces early on. I think the example was when we first launched our, our plate collection in 2019 that we have today, we launched actually with this glaze, like a very matte glaze. And we, for a long time, were getting customer feedback. Hey, like this glaze is, it's not great. Like it leaves these like artificial cutlery marks. Like, and it's, it's not that great. I'm not super happy with it. And we kind of just kept going around in circles as a team of like, oh, maybe we can explain it better. Maybe we can like change this or change that as opposed to just getting to the root cost and kind of like cutting it off where it was and cutting our losses essentially and moving glazes. And it took us maybe six months before we decided, okay, now's the time. You know, we, we can't get around this. We need to actually go back to the drawing board and re-examine this, this thing. And I wish we would have, you know, taken in that customer feedback earlier and made that adjustment right away because we were essentially just digging ourselves into a hole for a period of time. And I, I think that was a, a learning lesson for us that if something's not working, understand the root cause and um, just try and fix the, the root of the problem, not try and just, you know, trim around it. Then mm, it sounds like a lesson there too is also like don't swim upstream unless you you have to right look for where the current is going look for what what's working rather than trying to uh, pass together what's not so if you want to thank you so much for your time Joe again fablehome.co is a website and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience thanks I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.